The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, folks. Welcome. I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. We are in a time of extraordinary loss of loved ones. Worldwide, more than a million people have died from COVID-19. More Americans have died from COVID in nine months than in combat in World War II. Countless others have died of other causes and at times without family access in the final moments. With extraordinary loss of loved ones, there's extraordinary grief. How do we cope with such grief? We're so fortunate to have as a return guest, Dr. Joanne Cacciatore, who joins us today to discuss her newest book, literally released two weeks ago, entitled Grieving is Loving, Compassionate Words for Bearing the Unbearable. Dr. Cacciatore is a tenured research professor at Arizona State University. She directs the graduate program in trauma and bereavement. She's worked with and counseled those affected by traumatic death since 1996. Her new book, Grieving is Loving, unfolds from her best-selling book, Bearing the Unbearable, Love, Loss, and the Heartbreaking Path of Grief. It's meant as a daily source of resources. Her book, Heartbreaking Path of Grief, won the Indies Book of the Year Award and made it into Oprah's Basket of Favorite Things. In 2016, Dr. Cacciatore started Self Care Farm, which incorporates healing for those with loss by interaction with almost 40 domestic and farm animals rescued from abuse, torture, neglect, and homelessness. She also founded MISS, capital M-I-S-S, Foundation in 1996, which is an international NGO that helps families facing the death of a child. Dr. Joanne Cacciatore, it is my privilege to welcome you back to Psych Up Live. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's an honor to be here with you again. Thanks so much. So, Joanne, let's start with the question, what prompted you to write the new book? Well, in part, it came from grieving people themselves who were emailing and asking for another kind of book that they really loved the short chapters in my first book. So the short chapters in my first book uh, came about because we, my, my editor, publisher, and I understood grief brain and that especially in acute grief, it can be very hard to focus for very long. So the chapters are three, four pages long, and it's very easy to dip in and dip out. This book is really a book of contemplations, of meditations, that consists of more, even more brief thoughts about grief, where people can just open to a page and really absorb, at any point in the book, absorb a particular contemplation about grief and what it means to them in that particular moment. And that seemed very important to people who were grieving. They really wanted me to, if you will, distill down some of the teachings of some of the great, uh, you know, 
thought leaders and emotion leaders in the field and also my own. So I said, okay, well, I will work on that. And then my, I, I will admit that my, my editor pushed just a little bit <laughs> um, and yeah. uh, really wanted me to get it out there probably because of the current situation with the COVID-19 pandemic. And it really is, I want our listeners to know, it really is a resource. The poems, the uh, words of wisdom, the letters, the quotes, the, every one of them has so much meaning that, that you will carry them and underline them and turn the pages, and we're going to be sharing some of them in this show. Now, just yeah, for those thank you. Who, I, that, that's what I've been hearing from people already. I mean, it's just been out a little while where people already are sending me, you know, dog-eared pages and highlighted yes. and saying thank you, you know. So Absolutely. It's, um, you know, it's emotionally laborious work. It's it's tragic. You hear so many tragic stories, but it, but to be able to connect with people and really help them find their center again makes it quite well worth it. Right. I'll just give our listeners one example. At one point you say, love doesn't die, people do. Ritual is the anecdote to helplessness. Grief will wait to be felt, but not so long, or it'll become toxic. I mean, the kind of things you say really underscore your theory and your position about grief. Now, it's different than what convention often tells when they say to people, "Um, aren't you done yet? It's been five years. Maybe share your perspective on grieving, Joanne. I I promote, I call it fully inhabited grief, and that is, um, that, that grief is not this monolithic emotional structure. Grief entails many different emotional experiences from despair to anger to guilt and shame and rage and confusion and desperation and all kinds of emotional experiences, deep sadness, anguish. Uh, there, is, there are many different emotions that can fall under what I call the grief umbrella and also some other important emotional experiences like meaningfulness and connection and oneness and sometimes even joy. And so all of these sort of emotions can, can fall underneath a person's particular grief umbrella. And my position and what I help teach my clients to do is how to fully inhabit grief. That is how to be with whatever emotion comes up for them how to integrate it, process it, express it, and then to let it move. And that goes for both the emotions that some would qualify as good emotions and some would qualify as, quote, bad emotions. I don't know, in my book, no emotions are good or bad. Emotions just are. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there are the emotions that people want to have and there are the emotions that people don't want to have. (laughs) And so... With either one of those sort of categories of emotions, I help people just stay with it, trusting themselves eventually, coming to a place of trust in themselves, that they can allow those emotions to move. So one of the, I have an example that came up just this week as I, as, as I was responding to a group um, actually from another country. And the young counselor was saying that she was confronted with a situation of a mother of a number of children who had lost a child. And the mother was in a darkened room, 
um, lying on her bed, sometimes scrolling through her phone. Occasionally, she would come out. And so the family, the town, people were very, very concerned. She didn't quite know how to approach this. I think the young counselor was aware of what you share, which is to ask people not to grieve is to ask them not to feel. She knew she couldn't go there, but the question she had for me is how do you invite people to embrace grief without losing themselves or the role they play for the people in their life? Well, see, now that's a tricky question <laughs> because, I, first of all, I don't have enough information. But here's what right. I would do if I, if I had a client like that. Okay. The very first thing I want to know is how is your social support? How are people treating you? How are people treating the one you love who died? And how are people treating your grief? Because what I most often find is that people who appear to be, quote, stuck, and I don't even really like that word, but that's Mm -hmm. a word that's often presented to me by other clinicians who are seeking tutelage around this, Mm -hmm. Uh, what they often say to me is the person is, quote, stuck. And then in reality, when I ask someone who has that sort of the, the, what other people might call stuckness, mm-hmm. when I ask them what's your social support like, I would say 98 times out of 100, what they share with me is they have limited social support. Mm-hmm. Okay. So people in their social support system are pushing them to get over it, are pretending like it didn't happen, are avoiding talking about, you know, they, they say, how are you? And then if the person answers, you know, I'm really struggling, they say, oh, come on, it's been fill in the blank three months, two weeks, three days, you know, three years, Mm -hmm. 30 years, it's time to get over it. And those kinds of intimations from the social system, they do two things. First, they get internalized in the grieving person, not always, but sometimes. Some grieving people really internalize those messages, and then they start to question themselves and they stop trusting themselves. And that, that diminished trust in self has some pretty important psychological effects that are really deleterious. Mm -hmm. So they can cause the person to self-doubt, to socially withdraw, uh, to pull back their energy. Uh, It's a a real problem. (laughs) It's a a real problem. Mm -hmm. The, The second thing that they do is that they create a state of... Um, let's see, how do I want to say this? They create a state for the grieving person of feeling socially isolated because other people don't understand. Right. Right. And there seems to be an an unwillingness to try to understand. There's often even a shame that goes with the person grieving because they're being told, why can't you pull it together? Or don't you see what's happening here? And, you know, you're so right in terms of social support. There could be people around you, but if no one really wants to be with you and your story, your social support is really not quite available. I think I want our listeners to hear you have a beautiful quote in your new book. There's no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you, Maya Angelou. And I think if no one's willing to hear the story, no matter how many times shared, it doesn't matter how many people are around you. It's true. It's absolutely true, and and, that, and therein lies the problem because other people think, oh, I'm I'm nice to them, I support them, <laughs> but 
But saying to someone who's crying, going to their houses, these are stories I hear every day, just so you know. Um, you know, someone calls her best friend and says, I miss Trevor so much. I, I can't, I, I don't know if I can bear life without him. And friend says, oh, I'll be right over. And that sounds like a good idea. But then when friend gets there, friend says, come on, let's go have a drink. Right. Mm. You know, let's so go to the bar. You know, it's, it's probably not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's well it, the culturally people are somewhat confused which is why your work is so important because there's a tendency to get on with it, get past with it and you'll be better. But one of the things you say both in the the stories and the quotes in this book and your former book and you you quote Yalom is that when we don't talk about or we're not able to be with pain and grief it comes knocking somewhere else. The body yeah. keeps score. The body screams. I once had a um, fireman after 9-11 who I was working with who was constantly fighting with everyone. So angry. Constantly angry. And I asked him at some point, and he was angry that everyone died, angry that his buddies died. I asked him, did he ever cry? And he said, I can't cry. If I stop crying, I'll never stop. Yeah. So there was no permission to grieve on the yeah. part of this yeah. wonderful man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and therein, what he said right there is indicative of the lack of self-trust. This fear that if I start crying, I'll never stop. First of all, no one stops crying and never stops. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. I mean, it, it really, it's a, it's a, that's a problem with not trusting ourselves mm-hmm. with our emotions. And how can we trust ourselves with our emotions if other people don't trust us to feel what we feel? If other people are saying, oh, you shouldn't feel that way, how can we possibly trust our emotions if everything from our culture is intimating that we shouldn't be feeling those emotions? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the other things that is so important in both books is what you call you know, the the dialectic about feelings, that is, it is actually possible to be happy and to be grieving at the same time. Yes. Yeah. And I don't think people, maybe talk a little bit about that. I don't think that's easy for us to grasp. It's not easy for us to grasp because we have dichotomous mind, right? We we think it's a it's a digital yes or no, happy or sad, dark or light. We don't understand that the two exist conditions can exist. Maybe it's an issue of foreground and background, but there is coexistence there. So, for example, I live with grief every day because my daughter died 26 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so I, grief is part of my daily emotional experiences because she's still dead. Right. And I imagine that I'll live the rest of my life having grief part of my daily experience of emotions. And that's okay because I'm also quite happy and joyful sometimes, and certainly lead a meaningful and content life. And they are not mutually exclusive. And so I can be having a day where grief is in the foreground, and I'm feeling really very much feeling what I call the presence of her absence. And, and it feels very heavy and very sort of difficult to move through the world because it's in the foreground. Mm-hmm. But even on days when it's in the background and it's not front and center, it's still there. Mm-hmm. Now, and, in go ahead. I'm sorry. Keep going. No, no, no. Go ahead. 
So you also, Joanne, don't feel guilty for feeling happy. She's there with you, but I, I, with some of the folks I've worked with, they'll say, I almost forgot about losing him, and I feel badly that I had a good time. So they, yeah. that there's either way, there's not a permission to have those two feelings, I love the way you say it, with different ones in the foreground you know, and in the background on different days or different times within the same day. Yes, yes, that's right. So this idea that, this idea that it's, you, you, that you put grief away, that you, that grief is a process that has a beginning and a middle and a concrete ending. Um, when loss is catastrophic, it's, it's a little bit silly. I mean, I don't, I think it's an unrealistic expectation that our parent dies or our partner dies or our child dies or our sibling dies. Or, you know, for some people, if they're, if they're, primary love object, if you will, if the person they love most in the world is their pet or animal, then maybe they're animal. To, to envision a time when that ends is impossible for people if they really love deeply. And that's okay. It doesn't have to end in order to have a meaningful and good and fulfilling life. And I think that's the problem is that we, don't, we really don't understand we really don't understand that concept. And, it, and this isn't just in Western culture. This is in many cultures around the world. I have people who, who come to me from, from cultures where we think they do grief better who say, no, we're not doing grief better. <laughs> you know, <laughs> help, help, me, help me communicate this to my culture. And so it's, I, my sense about this is that it's, it's well-intentioned, that that, this, that society at large really wants to help grievers, but society at large does not know how to help grievers. The idea is that the expression of sadness and grief represents something that we have to fix, and this is not fixable. This is not reparable. Support, we're have to, absolutely. Me, I just have to interrupt you because we have to take a break, but I think sure. one of the things you write in the, new, in the new book is, I live a full and meaningful life, not in spite of grief, but because of grief. That's right. Mm, it's beautiful. Um, we're going to take a quick break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and our return guest, we're so fortunate, is Dr. Joanne Cacciatore. She's here discussing her perspective on grief, her years of working with those who've been grieving, and her beautiful new book, Grieving is Loving. It unfolds from her best-selling book, or one of her best-selling books, Bearing the Unbearable Love Loss and the Heartbreaking path of grief. Stay with us. Much more to come. Streaming live. The leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in every week for Making Action Happen, hosted by Sarah Blackhurst. The program takes you inside Action 22, a Colorado-based community outreach organization established in 1999. The show focuses on public policies, both politically driven or not, which have ongoing and immediate impact on the Colorado community and the world. It doesn't matter where you are, you can make action happen. Listen Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and 1 p.m. Mountain Time on Voice America Variety. Planning for college? 
Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania, and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance of success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Hi, folks. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Joanne Cacciatore, and we're talking about grieving in her new beautiful little book, Grieving is Loving. So, Joanne, let's talk about what I think people want to know how to do, and that is you talk about the person who's grieving mustering up the strength and the courage to reach out to others. That's very tricky because they often don't know what they're going to say and they don't want to bring their cloud onto other people. So I want to talk about that side. And then the other side is if I have a friend who's grieving, there's a tendency for people to avoid someone who's had a loss, almost as if, I don't know if I'll say the right thing, maybe I'll make things worse. So let's talk about both the griever and how they might reach out and what they can expect and how they can help that connection as well as the friend who's not quite sure what to do, Joanne? Well, for grieving people, the research is pretty pretty clear that the most important kind of support that we can get, other than emotional support, this comes from research that actually I'm just getting ready to publish, um, is emotional support is the primary, but appraisal support is 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 very important for grieving people. And the most common, commonly sought after and effective source of appraisal support is connecting with like others. And so what I tell people is, you know, like support groups or connecting with other grieving parents or reading books that were written by other people who have had similar losses and also who have a similar philosophy about that loss can be incredibly helpful because it helps us to not feel as alone. And so when we reach out to another person for either support or to be supportive, there's a, a symbiosis in that relationship. There's a, there's a sort of a, a knowing the otherwise unknowable and unspeakable mm-hmm. in connecting to another person. I mean, how do you tell someone how awful it is to have had your child killed in her classroom right? By a, by a gunman. How can someone understand that experience from the inside unless you, too, have experienced the death of a child to violence or even mm-hmm. the death of a child, broadly speaking? Mm-hmm. It's, it's very, it's inexplicable, really, because, because the loss has so much nuance and so right. many layers 
that that connection with someone who's like you helps in so many ways. They have found ways perhaps to talk about, to, to use words to describe that can help you. You perhaps have found words that can be used to describe that could help them. It's a real symbiosis. And well, so for me, in grief support, one of the most important connections to make is to connect with others. Uh, my, the nonprofit organization I run, the Miss Foundation, one of the things that we have that's a very popular program is called the Hope Mentor Program, Helping Other Parents Endure. Right. And so if we have a, a, a bereaved mom whose you know, two-year-old just drowned, drowned six months ago, we'll connect her with a, another bereaved mom whose two-year-old drowned two years ago. Right, right. In the military, it's called substantive validation. Nobody yeah. knows unless they've walked That's in right. those boots. And it's a very, I am agreeing with you, it's such a powerful program that you're describing because it's, and if the, I do a lot of group work, and if it's in a group, very often I've seen uniformed service folks say, what he said is what I feel, but he didn't yeah. have the words, but someone yeah, else exactly. did. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly it's, it. So the person who has had a loss, who might have lost a loved one in a nursing home and couldn't be there, um, would do well to if they knew of some other person who had suffered in a similar way. Usually that's the case, yes. It's not 100%, right. but there is something to connecting with like others that's mm-hmm. incredibly powerful. I think as you described the mothers who lost the little ones and you had that experience yourself, just to know that the person went on, that they that the grief didn't kill them, although in fact it sometimes felt like it did, is an enormous nonverbal message. Yes. Yes. That's right. So one yes. thing is and, and and so one thing what would be to connect with someone who might know what's unsayable about the loss you've suffered. Yes, yes. Connecting with people who well, what did you call it from the military? Substantive validation. Substant substance substantive, substantive validation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So th- so that is validation is comes out in the research over and over and over again that people who are grieving and probably this extends to trauma, I'm sure, because if you, you know, military trauma is not uh, not an uncommon experience. And so this idea of being validated by another who is on the inside and who, who can who can sort of stand next to you shoulder to shoulder in that experience and say, yep, yep, that's what we saw. Yep, that's what we feel. Yep, that's what we're experiencing. I I mean the potency of that is it, it's Enormous. it's moving and it's meaningful. Mm. Now, one thing given we don't always have that you, that you describe is that one of the things you say you do is get close to someone and let them tell their particular story. So if if I may not I may not have lost a child, but I have a neighbor who just did. And all I do is make room for her or him to tell their story uninterrupted by me in different ways over the course of our coffee visits for a half hour a day, if that works for us. The way you described how you would listen to the unedited 
um, mm. version of the story, I think could also serve, you're suggesting it in your book, to help somebody with coping. Yes, absolutely. Um, you, you know, coping is one of those things that is is not explored enough in the bereavement literature, in my opinion. And there's a coping that happens within us. So characterologically, our propensity to, for example, introverts might have a harder time coping than extroverts because extroverts are usually more proactive help seekers, right? So there are characterological internal propensities. There, there is the propensity of the way that others view us and our grief experience. And then there's the space between um, the, the, the I, the thou, and the we, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, for example... I just gave an example of the I, and then the thou, the way other people treat us. I work with two uh, bereaved mothers. One of them, her son actually died in um, uh, as a result of a, a substance overdose, okay? mm-hmm. so drug abuse. Okay, And he struggled with drug abuse for a number of years before his death. Uh, the other bereaved mother I work with, her son died trying to save someone's life. Mm-hmm. Okay, now these two women go out into the same community, and this is how they're treated. The one whose son is viewed as a hero is, oh, we're thinking of you, we're thinking of him, what an amazing young man you raised, you must miss him, he's so special, gosh, he sacrificed so much, okay? The other mother whose son died of a drug overdose doesn't get that. Right. Right. And that's how others treat us. And do you think that that affects her grief? Well, of course, right. Of course it does, but we don't think about that. So instead right. what we see is a mother like that who holds up in her home, who socially withdraws, who, um, who may be engaged in some self-harming behaviors because she has no other way to cope and because others have sort of marginalized her, but also said some shaming things about her child who as a mother she wants to protect mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and her experience of grief and the expression of that and thus what we see as quote pathology as clinicians is going to be quite different than the person who's treated whose child is treated as a hero and is actively remembered in the community and they erected a memorial in his honor and everywhere she goes people are Oh, p- applauding her son. I mean, you know, it's a very different experience. Yes, very, very different. So what we're saying to to, to ourselves and to listeners is consider the, that the judgment when added to your response to a grieving person is a tremendous factor that has to be accounted for. Yes, absolutely. I, I have, Not just... Yeah, not just the judgment, but, but the ju- I mean, what's important about this is that circumstances of the death and the ways in which others treat us and perceive us matter in the way that we experience and express and cope with grief. So that mother whose son was a hero, uh, lauded as a hero in the community, it's not that she's not in, in excruciating pain. Of course she is, but she has amazing social support from other people. Yep. And they uphold her. And yes. when she cries, they surround her and they, oh, they comfort her. And, oh, yes, there's so much to miss. And, oh, yes, your son. And people remember with her. 
So we need to then consider if I'm someone, and I've worked with many families who've lost someone to suicide, if we're someone who's feeling not only grief but shame, how do we do what you suggest, which is muster up the courage to reach out to others? I guess we reach for other organizations that help people grieve when it's complicated and painful. Well, I, I think... I think more importantly, we need, we need more education. <laughs> I think we need pedagogical models that don't fail us. Um, there's, there are multiple critiques in the literature from medical education to social work education to psychological education um, and to pastoral education about how we're failing people who are suffering because we don't, because we are emotionally devoid so we, we teach about, quote, mental health, but what do we know about emotional health? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are we teaching about emotional health? Are we emphasizing emotional well-being and emotional equanimity and emotional intelligence? And the answers to those questions are no, 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 resounding no. And right. so the pedagogical models are failing. Our community-based models are failing. Uh, this hyper-focus on the cerebral, the cognitive, and behavioral at the, at, the, at the expense, at the sacrifice of the emotional is a real problem in our culture, as evidenced by the fact that we're not getting better. Quote, mental health is not getting better. And that, just, that, that fact precedes the COVID-19 pandemic. But it really brings home the importance of your work and those like you in terms of dealing with grieving and, you know, depathologizing it and giving people tools for responding. Because at the moment, not only are we not emphasizing mental health and not, we're in a culture that is grieving millions. So, you know, so it's all the more reason why your message, both about mental health and grieving becomes crucial at this time. We can't, you know, you simply can't ignore the enormity of the loss. And people actually don't quite know how to respond. I say often, for instance, Joanne, one thing that people have felt heartbroken about is not being at a loved one's deathbed and and, and that problem. And, and the, I'm interested in how you respond. I usually say, you know, the last line of the story of your loved one's light is not the whole story. And yeah. we can stay riveted on the fact that you were outside at a window or you couldn't be allowed in. Well, we could remember and hold on to that person and all they were to you. Yes, yes. So, uh, so we I, have to help people. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, I was going to say, I think we have to, I think we have to stay with the with the unedited version of their story, which, if you're a clinician, at first is probably going to be focused on the pain and the grief and the trauma, especially if the loss is traumatic, right? And so, which initially might be that, and over time might soften to, you know, let me tell you my favorite time with him or her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. But, yes. but what clinicians do too quickly, and this is from my own research, is step in and try to force clients to find meaning in their loss. Right. Absolutely and, right. Yeah. And of course, you know, I'm, when I do training for clinicians, which I do a lot, um, that's one of my cautions is don't stop doing that. Give them the space to explore that when they're ready 
and you don't need your, to put your input. This is about them and their experience, not you and your experience of them. Well, you know, just bearing on what you're saying, one of the things you say in your original book is the Latin root of the word emotion. Yes. Which, maybe you want to share that? It's movir, which mm-hmm. means to move through or something that, that moves. Right. And, right. and you talk, if people only would trust that emotions move in us, through us, between us when we allow it, yes. is what is yes. what you wrote. We don't yes. need to push people to the next stage. One person came That's to me right. and said, I'm at the wrong stage of grieving. I said, I don't even know what stages we're talking about here. Right, right. So, right. You know, so... So the whole idea of what you're saying is whether you're a clinician or the, or the friend next door. That's right. Yes. Just be with it. And I think you descri- there's a description in the new book in which you, you describe what a person needs and you say, just sit next to me. Don't say yeah. anything. Just sit next to me. I, all the time I say to young clinicians, the compassionate presence, just sitting next to someone that's big. It's not nothing. It's really big. It is really big. And that's probably one of the hardest things for people to do. Because <laughs> what people want to do is to fix something. And usually it's because of their own discomfort with emotions. And this is not just for neighbors and friends and family. This is also for providers. I meet many providers who are quite uncomfortable with uh, with emotions around grief, and especially when traumatic, especially when a child has died, um, it can really be evocative. Let's say, you're, let's say that you're working with a therapist who has a six-year-old at home and your six-year-old died of cancer. Mm-hmm. Look, the therapist is a human being. What do you think she's thinking or he's thinking? Right. Absolutely. I, it, yeah. it brings up to the fore that mortality salience, which makes us afraid. And when we're afraid, we're not dealing. We're not dealing with our client. We're dealing with our fear. Our fear is getting in the way of our relationship with the client. And Absolutely. this is why it's so important to teach this in pedagogical models in school. Mm. Well, we're going to take a brief break, and we're going to come back and continue to talk about understanding grief embracing it and how we respond, whether we're the person who's grieving or someone who cares about the person who's grieving. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Joanne Cacciatore. Her new book is Grieving is Loving. It's beautiful. We'll be using some quotes from it in our next section. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Very sure has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation, Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Hi, folks. Welcome back. We're speaking with Dr. Joanne Cacciatore. Her new book, Grieving is Loving. Joanne, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the quotes and some of the messages that you share. Um, yeah. One of the things that that we all know is people are often afraid to literally approach grieving people. Um, yeah. why, do you th- why do you think that's true? Uh, fear. I think fear gets in the way of of allowing people to connect. And I think sometimes it's fear, certainly, of saying or doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. I also think uh, the research, uh, for example, from Ernest Becker, Ernest Becker's work talks about mortality salience and uh, the dangers when we become aware of mortality, that, that the fear... Uh, of that can take over and can interfere in us having meaningful connections with others. So I think it's a combination between being people being overwhelmed by their own emotions, like fear, uh, especially people who have other children. I have heard many, many times, especially from parents whose children die, but also from some siblings whose brother or sister has died, uh, that when they're in social situations, people avoid them. They, they, yes. We call it the grocery store turnaround, <laughs> where they'll see yes. you in the grocery store and make eye contact, and then it registers who you are, and they literally will turn their cart around and go the opposite direction. In a bereavement group that I ran, um, for, it was for uh, women who had lost their spouses on 9-11, they would say, if only people could say, I don't really know what to say. I just want to be with you and want you to know that I, that I care so much about you. You really don't have to know what to say. You can admit that <laughs> because yeah, the person who's had the loss really, really will understand that. You know, that brings me to the question I mentioned at our break, which is sometimes it's not a person. It's a pet. It's a beloved yeah. animal. And people are hesitant to dare to let people know how much they're grieving. Now, you have the, at the farm, you're dealing with animals that have been neglected or in some way abused. How, how did you put that together, that idea of grieving and animals and, and, and the importance of animals to people? Well, I have been an animal lover my whole life. And I remember after my daughter died, I remember explicitly a moment where I realized that the only sources of emotional support that I had in that moment uh, 
were my three-year-old daughter and my dogs. Okay. All the adults around me seem to be rather lacking, <laughs> and that's, that's generous. And I could not fathom why they were so inept with my grief. Mm. So I found a tremendous amount of comfort in my dogs and my three-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. at three, what could she possibly say? She couldn't say much, but she just sat there with me. She would, you know, I would start crying because it was her baby sister who died. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would start crying and she would, you know, she would just sit next to me and she would pet my hair and not expect anything of me. Just sit there with me. And my dogs did the same thing. And so now fast forward many years, 20 years later, and was it 20 years later? Yeah, I guess it was 20 years later. And I met a horse because I had forgotten about this. I had completely, I, I remembered it when I thought about it in the context of a horse I met many years later. But in terms of grief support, I, I just didn't connect it with, in my scholarship and in my practice. So fast forward 20 years and I meet a horse that had been very badly abused. Uh, he was being used as a pack animal on a trail. I had I was planning on hiking that trail. I had my backpack on, my water, my tent, everything, and I was going to hike it down, and it's quite a hike. It's like a 13, 14-mile hike, and I was going to camp down there, and I'd been preparing for this trip probably most of my adult life. <laughs> I'd wanted to do this trip, and I finally got the chance to do it. It was my 50th birthday. I was like, yay! So I start on the trail, and within three minutes or four minutes on the trail, I come around a corner, and there's an emaciated, dehydrated, nearly dead horse that a, man was beat, uh, that a man was beating trying to get up. And uh, I, I, I know nothing about horses, but I do know about compassion, and so I started screaming at him. The horse was bleeding from his head, and his knees were bleeding, and I started to cry and yelled at the man, leave him alone, and long story short, uh, three days later, I ended up being able to rescue this horse. Not easily. It was quite amazing. a fight, but I rescued the horse. God bless I'm sorry. You. I said it's wonderful. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it it was wonderful. He was nearly dead. He was supposed to be about 1,100 pounds. He probably weighed 600 pounds, oh, nearly goodness. half of his normal body weight. Yeah. Bones were actually coming through his skin. He actually had uh, strike marks all over his body, open wounds all over his body. It was It was pretty horrific. I've never seen anything like it. So everyone thought he was going to die, and he did not die. Thankfully, he's, he's now one of our sort of therapy horses here at the Sella Care Farm. Anyway, so I work with many Native clients, many uh, different from many different tribes, and my clients, my Native clients would come and they would share with me, but I didn't hear them. They didn't emote a lot. They cried, but a lot of them weren't particularly emotional with me during session, they were very open, but they didn't emote. And then one, once or twice, uh, I had clients ask me if they could go and sit with my horse. And one in particular asked, can I go spend some time with your horse? And I said, yes. And so I let her go out there, and I said, do you want me to stay? No, go ahead and leave. So I left, left my office door cracked slightly because uh, I had a home office at the time. And I then hear, hear her sobbing out there, just mm. sobbing with him. Mm wailing 
And I thought to myself, well, that horse is a better therapist than me. And so I started to understand the power of this rescue animal and what he was doing and bringing to people in the relationship. And so I I said, okay, there's something here. And that's how I started the Sella Care Farm. And, and of course, it was that experience that, that reminded me 20 years earlier, that's right, it was my three-year-old and my dogs who were the greatest source of emotional support for me. So then we can even understand not only the power of you making it something that's available to people at the farm, but animals and people have such unique connection emotionally, unspoken, unconditional, that when... Yeah. People lose a pet, or who, I mean, there are horse lovers and dogs or cats, whatever. This is a this is a time of serious grieving for them, also. That we don't want them to think that you shouldn't make a big deal of it. It's a big deal. Yes. So, yeah, but but when we put together the power of healing with humans and animals, it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah, it it is quite extraordinary. It's so, quite overwhelming and quite extraordinary. Mm. So, and we're, and we're going to tell folks later how to get in touch with you and, and all of your resources of that sort. One, one of the other things that you write that I remember that I love so much in one of your quotes is you say, "In remembering our beloved, we hold open their place in our hearts." And you say things like, there's no better place for our loved ones than with us, which I think when we have someone who's missing or we haven't had the typical funeral, to remember that this person is with us now as an enduring presence makes such a difference. Yes. I think first I want to acknowledge that they're not with us in the way we want them to be with us. Right. Right. I mean, it's, it's not enough mm-hmm. for them to be with us in, in spirit, if you will, in, in memory, if you will. It's not, it's not good enough. And yet, it's what we have. Mm-hmm. Well said, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you find, let's say, with your baby daughter that you actually talk to her? Um, yeah, in my mind, not mm-hmm. usually not out, not outwardly. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, but you know, in my mind, I talk to her all the time, mm-hmm. and certainly, and perhaps more importantly for me, I feel like I'm able to embody who she would have been in the world and bring that love to the world because I have fully inhabited and continue to fully inhabit my grief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's such an important thing for people to share. And it's so powerful, the examples you give in that in your book, Bearing the Unbearable, when you come across people who, by coincidence, happen to have her name. And it, it's just extraordinary, it, you know, yeah. the, the connection and how, it, how it's very much there for you. Let me ask you this, because people have asked me, you say in the, in, the, in the beautiful new little book, rituals provide connection maintenance. They allow us to connect. We have been devoid of rituals because of COVID. When that's not been possible, what do you say to people? What do you suggest? Well, I suggest a broader definition of ritual and a broader conceptualization of ritual. So we've been what we have been devoid of is the traditional funerary rituals that 
bring people together in the way that we understood it. And that's the way most of us really want to and should be able to enact ritual according to our culture. Unfortunately, this pandemic has changed that, right? So what I tell people is get as creative as you can in ritualizing. And that can mean, you know, planning a funeral, you know, years out. You know, you can plan a funeral for 2021 post-pandemic. You can plan a memorial service. You don't, you probably wouldn't have, if you aren't cremating, you probably wouldn't have the body, the person's body there, but you would, you could have ashes if they're cremated. You could have a photo of them and still have a funeral. So you can plan for a future funeral in a more traditional sense. You could plan for other kinds of rituals like doing their favorite hike that's socially distanced. I mean, there are ways in which to enact to, to enact ritual that aren't traditional ways. It's probably not what most people want. Okay. Well, but, I, I just but again, it's I, I what apologize. we have in the apps. Yeah. Okay. Okay. In 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 the interest of time, I want to know what is we need to ask you for a short take home message, and then how people can find your books, Joanne. Sure. The books are on Amazon, Bearing the Unbearable, Love, Loss, and the Heartbreaking Path of Grief, and then the second follow-up to that, which is Grieving is Loving. And, the, you know, I don't know, the take-home message is that grief is not an enemy. Grief is not something that we have to push aside. In fact, grief can make our lives bigger, not smaller, and help us to feel more deeply all things and all suffering in the world, it, that can come, that, from that can come a place of fierce compassion. If we can stay with our painful feelings long enough, they can transform into a kind of unstoppable force for good in the world. It's That's hard good. to access that, though, if we abbreviate. It's beautiful, and it's why you have the kind of compassion that comes through in your words. I really encourage our listeners to take a look at this beautiful new little book. Thank you so much for joining us on Psych Up Live again. It's such a difficult time for so many people. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast on my host site, my website, by 6 p.m. Eastern. This will be a podcast on the iPhones, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple, Google Play, Spotify, all of the the um, podcast places that you hear other other shows. Drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. But until next week, please be safe, wear a mask, thank you, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.